0: Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. Before we get to today's episode, we've got something exciting happening in the autumn that we think you should know about. From the 16th to the 28th of September, we'll be screening a selection of films for the Barbican's autism and cinema season. From biopics to documentary, a classic David Lynch movie, and a curation of short films created by autistic filmmakers, this is a season set to challenge, inspire, and change a few minds for the better. Tickets are on sale now via the Barbican Cinema in London. We hope to see you there. In today's episode, the team tackle three animated films, two shorts and one feature length. The two shorts are Loop, written and directed by Erica Milsom, and Float, written and directed by Bobby Rubio. Both of these shorts are part of Pixar's Spark Shorts series, and were released in 2020. The feature length film is the Australian stop-motion animation Marion Max, directed by Adam Elliot, released in 2009. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the uh, Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, My name is Dr. David Hartley, and uh, we're here gathered again today to uh, talk about uh, another film. Um, In fact, we've got three films today to talk about um, in relation to autism. Um, I'm joined by Alex Widdowson, John James Laidlaw, uh, Georgia Bradburn and Janet Harbord today. And Janet is going to um, lead us in an introduction on the films that we're going to be uh, looking at and discussing in this episode. Janet. Thanks, David. So the three
1: films we're looking at today are two shorts from uh, Pixar Animation Studios based in California, Um, Float from 2019 and Loop from 2020. Uh, And we're also going to be talking about Mary and Max, a 2009 Australian stop motion uh, animated comedy drama. So first of all then, uh, the two shorts are part of the Spark Short series um, developed by Pixar. A program in which Pixar's employees were given six months and limited budgets to develop short animated films, which were first of all released on Pixar's YouTube channel and later uh, on Disney Plus. Float from 2019 was made by Bobby Rubio um, and inspired by Rubio's son, who has autism. The boy in the film is different from other children since he can float. And this particular ability is um, regarded with suspicion by other people in the neighbourhood. And we see the father attempting to suppress uh, this attribute that his son has um, that makes him different. And the film explores the father's choice between uh, trying to shape his son to fit in or trying to explore his differences with him. Um, The initial storyboards contained Caucasian characters, but Rubio was encouraged to depict Filipino-American characters uh, to reflect his own ethnicity. Uh, The second film, Loop from 2020 was made by Erica Milsom. Uh, It runs to 11 minutes and it was Pixar's first non-verbal autistic character in this film. This attracted a lot of attention, uh, mostly positive. It's the sixth Spark short film, um, it showcases the world of Rennie, a nonverbal autistic character who is also voiced by a nonverbal autistic girl, Madison Bandy. The film is set during a camp uh, and uh, a neurotypical character, Marcus, is charged with taking Rennie out on the lake in a canoe. Marcus struggles to find a way to communicate with Rennie who almost capsizes the canoe. Uh, And like Float, the film solves for a point of connection between these two characters who experience the world um, quite differently. Um, In terms of the production history, Milsom had previously worked with people with disabilities. Um, She'd been a vocational educator in her 20s and worked with people um, with different uh, different abilities and also connected with many people in the studio um, who have children with different sensory and communication um capacities. Uh, it's as as you can read on the film's credits, it was also made with the input from autistic consultants. So in contrast to these quite high-end um, high-production value computer animations, Mary and Max comes from a very different tradition um, of stop-motion animation, which really foregrounds the craft-like nature of the process of, of animating. Um, it's written and directed by adam elliot and was his first feature film uh, elliot works with biography as a structuring principle uh, and before he'd made maria max he'd made four shorts focused on one character uh, and these were titled uncle cousin brother maria max is based on a real-life relationship between elliot and a pen friend in the states who has asperger's Elliot states with the friend that he couldn't see what the fuss was all about. And when he did finally see the film, um, he sent through a list of what could have been done better. Uh, apparently, he couldn't understand what all the fuss was about, uh, about the letter writing, uh, as he's much more into mainstream films. The story of Mary and Max focuses on two characters, an eight-year-old girl from Australia who becomes a pen friend to Max, a middle-aged man living in New York City. The film is a black comedy uh, exploring through this exchange of letters, the friendship of two people who struggle socially and emotionally to fit in in life. Among Max's mental health issues are anxiety and depression. um, And he's also diagnosed with Asperger's calling himself an Aspie. Um, He goes on to describe to Mary the many traits that he has and which fit in with what others call his disability. Max's self-assessment, self-assessment, however, is different. He doesn't feel defective or need to be cured. And when Mary, as an adult, writes a book about his so-called disorder, their friendship is tested. The film's stop-motion aesthetic has been compared to that of Laika Studio in the US, uh, has made films like Coraline, and the Ardman um, Studio in the UK um, with a back catalogue of of Wallace and Gromit, of course. Elliot uses plasticine, emphasising the low-tech craft quality of his films. And the childlike animation of this aesthetic contrasts with the adult themes of this film, um, which include childhood neglect, addiction, alcoholism, recovery, uh, teasing, loneliness, mental illness, obesity, suicide, depression, isolation, anxiety, autism, Um, and the obscurity of life. In contrast to the sort of low tech aesthetic of of the craft, the voiceover and soundtrack is relatively high end. The film is voiced by uh, a range of famous actors, including Tony Collette, Barry Humphreys and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And the film's soundtrack uh, is woven from a selection of, of songs by artists, including Pink Martini and Penguin Cafe Orchestra.
0: Lovely. Thank you for that introduction, uh, Janet. Um, three really interesting uh, films, I think, that all uh, deal with autism in uh, similar but also quite different ways, I think. Um, so I think we're going to start by uh, uh, looking, uh, primarily focusing on the Pixar shorts uh, Loop and Float. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I guess we just open the floor. I mean, I neglected before to sort of just allow Alex, and Alex, John James and Georgia just to sort of say hello so that you can all hear their various voices. So I wonder if we could just start by doing that, if that's okay. So Alex, hello, welcome to the podcast. Hello, yeah, hi. Hi, hi, great. David. hi, hi. <laughs> hi, John
2: James, how are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good, hello everyone, hi. This is John James's
0: voice and finally Georgia.
3: Hi, I'm Georgia
0: great so now listeners should know who everybody is so that's great um yeah okay so let's shall we start with uh loop and float um maybe maybe let's start with float since that was the the first one to, what, what were people's reactions and opinions on float i really quite enjoyed it actually i thought it was a really nice little um nice little nice little short uh really uh, really well put together and um a really interesting and brief examination of um you know that kind of moment when a a, a parent moves from um you know the sort of i guess terror i guess of uh or the discomfort of their child being noticeably different to a moment of acceptance and embracing and in fact the uh the difference of a child yeah i don't know what were other people's reactions to the film
4: yeah i mean i've got a brother um with a learning disability, Um, but he's quite a lot older than me. So I entered into my family uh, with Jamie's sort of cognitive difference being a very normal part of our sort of little nuclear society. So, um, But I I heard my mum talk about the sort of uh, um, surprise and difficulty she had when he was born coming to terms with, the idea that his Down syndrome sort of sets him apart from the rest of the population and um, his sort of difference setting out a very, a very distinct path that deviated away from what um, she was anticipating for her friends' children. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's certainly a narrative that I can sort of connect with her from her sort of reports on, you know, expectations being challenged and then differences between um, your child and somebody else's child and sort of the sort of normative pressure that is everywhere in society, particularly um, sort of a competitive element between families and a sort of a conformity that's quite oppressive. Um, but she came to terms with it um, certainly by the time I was born, I think. <laughs> yes, and it um, I mean, yeah, so, so I could see that in there, but I mean, when I started watching the film, I, I must admit, I was quite shocked at some of the measures the father was taking to, uh, control the behavior of the child who seemed to be having nothing but fun, um, sort of exploring this environment and in, in, in his own way, um, you know, like the leash in particular, uh, um, evoked some images that I've seen of, um, sort of, parents attempting to control their autistic children um and really speak to the realities of some of those difficulties having not actually um been in that situation myself but it's that we are more wary of in terms of the narratives around autistic difference and the sort of relative perspectives between autistic individuals and um, neurotypical parents and so I think it was quite an ambitious task trying to sort of reconcile those different perspectives and finding a path that could rejoin the the, the father and son in this uh, uh, more collaborative approach um, starting from a sort of almost oppositional stance at the beginning. So yeah, I think it was yeah very ambitious, but it did actually go. It was it, it did have quite dark elements, in, sort of in the second act.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I'd echo that because there are quite a few shocking moments. I think the one that that shocked me the most potentially was the bit where he first goes to the playground and the his child um, manages to sort of. Get away from him and go and 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 starts sort of floating in the air. And he kind of grabs him and pulls him away. And there's this like long, this is quite sort of long shot of high up, long shot of him dragging the boy away, whilst this kid is screaming and protesting, um, and is really upset. while and everybody else in the playground is is staring at this at this situation, and that's quite you know last you know the, the previous podcast, we were talking about the um, the scene from Sia's film music where um, um music is in the park and gets you know restrained by um her the person who's supposed to be looking after and now this isn't quite as extreme but there's still a, a sense of uh, you know a neurotypical person controlling a a, a non neurotypical person in a in a public space whilst that non neurotypical person is is having a meltdown or is really struggling um and it's a disturb it's you know it's a really disturbing moment but I think it's supposed to be it's played for that for that disturbingness and it's the only time in the short where you get a line of dialogue because he the, the dad turns around grabs the child and says why can't you just be normal and that's the only line that is actually articulated in the whole um in the whole of the short and it's very powerful and quite moving but it's also it is also quite shocking, but I, you know, I'm similar to you, Alex, so that I've had, um, that my uh, older sister is, is autistic and, um, uh, yeah. And the same when, you know, for me, she was always a normal part of our family cause I was, you know, the younger sibling uh, as was my younger brother. Um, but there were times when we were in public and my sister would get very upset and my parents would then have to, you know, intervene at that point and and do something about it. And the whole situation is always very, tense and distressing um and there's kind of no easy way around it in some respects um but what i think what i appreciated in this short was that it was it was placed within a kind of public environment and it sort of showed um that, that it's born out of what the other people around you know the sort of so-called quote unquote normal people around the 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 situation it's how it's it's sort of reflecting on how they react to it and how that then impacts upon the stresses of the dad and how that whole that whole social situation creates that's that tense moment i guess um yeah
3: um it reminded me of um cuz yeah i agree that the dark elements of it um, really stand out and that's what really brings it to the like through the metaphor of like disability and caring for someone with autism um, and there was a post that went um quite viral um on the internet quite recently not not very viral I, I saw it but it was like a mum saying kind of boasting on the internet saying whenever my um neurodiverse child has a tantrum i i throw all their belongings out the window and they have to deal with it and pick it up um and then and she goes on to say my child has adhd autism um various conditions and says you know i don't care if they're neurodiverse or not i have to discipline them some way and that really you know it's quite upsetting to read something like that and it made me think about the methods that the dad was going to to kind of put restraints on the child like with the the collar and the the rocks in the bag um which i think as as profound as metaphors can can be i guess i mean that's a pretty big one um cuz i mean i don't have too much experience because uh i was only really diagnosed or sort of like suspected for autism in my early teens but even then you know if i uh experience sort of sensory overload in public. I think my parents their their first thought obviously was kind of to keep appearances because you know I was just kind of a, a teenager or a child who's just having a tantrum or something like that. And then they'll, you know, tell me to stop it. And it it did it does feel like a kind of weight because I, you know, you can't help it. can't help your your differences. But then I think my parents just wanted to um maintain some normalcy and it was only when they realized that it was um like autism just okay um yeah sorry the recording uh stopped there so I'm just gonna try and pick up where I left off um yeah I think I think if there was like one issue about um I mean it's not like not necessarily an issue, just something that people could pick up from the film is, is the the use of the metaphor of the floating um to substitute from the child's difference. Um because it really does sugarcoat it a little bit and it like it reflects back to those sort of perhaps sometimes damaging stereotypes of um the magical autistic person, the you know magician uh the wizard you know which really does kind of sugarcoat the reality which can be quite difficult and um in comparison to the other show which really does show it quite literally um there's often a danger that the metaphors can become very um just very broad and avoiding the issue in a nice way that people can sort of people can enjoy watching without really interrogating the issue and without seeing uh, neurodivergence on screen. That being said, it, I mean, it, it picks on and, and a lot of these are for kids. And I think it's also really it's really good that p- kids would see that on screen. But at the same time, I, I appreciate that maybe a lot of people would find it Harder to understand when it's you know, the reality, and we're looking at like fantasy here as well. So I mean, yeah, there's always there's always a concern that it could be sort of sk- skirting around the issue, but at the same time, it's a very personal film, and I guess the integrity of the filmmaker and and representing his family and his heritage is also really important as well, and I really like. You know how authentic he was with portraying that, and the dedication to his son at the end, because it really does feel like this film was a very um, personal project from the heart, uh, which is really good. But yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah, Georgia, what you were saying about the metaphor, sort of like masking or um or sort of mediating strongly the the forms of difference that are actually being alluded to in this, in this, I nearly said documentary. It's definitely not a documentary. It's a, it's a short, but it has very strong biographical roots. Um, it, Your comment made me think about the eye contact in the um, film. And I was interested in what, what you guys think about, because there's quite uh, emphasized moments of connection between the, the infant child and the, father in through moments of eye contact and I thought well I'm not saying that people who are autistic are incapable of eye contact and but it's uh maybe a, a a frequent sort of bit of information that actually eye contact isn't shouldn't be a sort of universal sort of signal of connection for everybody or for some people it's not so I was just wondering um if you thought do you think they've sort of softened it up for a neurotypical audience by sh- using eye contact as a sort of symbol for um, father-son connection? When and how that maybe undermines the sort of autistic difference of the child, or am I just clutching at straws here?
2: I didn't actually notice the eye contact thing, um, but you you might well be right. I think I think the film is for neurotypicals, but I think although it doesn't directly say this is an autistic experience or the the, the experience of an, a carer or parent of someone with autism, it does touch on a truth in a way that other, other films that directly represent autism don't. So I, I also thought of Sear's music, and I thought of the way that the people around the character music um react to her, and they're all very supportive. they don't judge her, which is really nice, but it's not really reality um and the way that the people are in um the way that people in float judge the child and his dad is is more is more true in a way um and i think it's it's this film is quite a lot about a social stigma and pressure um and cuz i grew up with um a much younger sibling who's also autistic um and has different support needs to me and i've worked with people adults with different support needs and the way people look at and judge people who are just existing is very hurtful, and it is even today very judgmental um, when there is a visible difference. So, yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't directly take these issues on and or n- or name them, but in a way, it, it sort of it gets to a truth that other films don't. I think. John James, what you were saying
4: reminds me of this uh, moment last summer. It was the UK's sort of hottest day on record, um, maybe like 38 degrees or something. And I had to leave the house and go to the park. And um, there was a guy in the park who was, you know, close to meltdown, um, just really stressing out. And his carers were sort of not too far behind, but being quite relaxed, just letting him just sort of blow off some steam. And I just overheard these young women um, saying it just wasn't right that he was allowed to be out in public like that. And it just really upset me and I couldn't help myself. And I was like, it's so hot, No wonder he feels this way. I feel this way. Like, why can't he just be stressed out? And, you know, I I, I couldn't hold my tongue. It was, and they didn't really like me interfering in their conversation But it's just it's so prevalent, isn't it, that all sorts of forms of difference are just sort of unacceptable for the majority, maybe not the majority, but for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting um, set of points that that, that you've all made. The the film reminded me very much of of, of being a parent with a small child and in those sorts of contexts where, you know, you you know that everyone's scrutinising other people's children for signs of bad behavior whatever that might be um and the way that that I thought the film dealt with that in a in a really uh succinct uh, and quite precise way when the neighbors opposite you, you see them all kind of noting talking at a distance but all looking towards the house um all of that seems um very astute in its observation but one of the things I was thinking about with with this question of what it means to work with, with a metaphor was that with animation um, there is the, the temptation of course to caricature and I know Alex as an animator you, you've you been thinking a lot about this so I was thinking about that with what you were saying Georgia of, of, about and John Jones about the, the use of a metaphor that it sort of is double-edged isn't it on the one hand it provides us with something quite creative to think about rather than being literal you know it's quite it, it it works quite nicely that the father attempts to literally weigh down the son and kind of ground him and and make him, you know, appear to be like everyone else. And 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 the, and the metaphor of floating is actually really quite lovely and light and sort of may, maybe a bit magical and special, maybe a bit Peter Panish as well. Um, but it avoids it avoids the problems of uh, caricaturing differences which can often be exaggerated in animation. So those are my thoughts about that. I mean, on that note, what did did people think about the much more literal representation of autism uh, in loop?
4: Well,
0: sort of one of the things I, I I wanted to say as a as a way of segueing segueing into Loop, I suppose, coming off what what Alex was the sort of anecdote Alex was just talking about in the park, uh, one of the things that I, I I've always found quite funny and and amusing and charming, I suppose, about my sister, um, it, in contrast to these kind of um, in contrast to sort of public autistic meltdown that is looked upon with sort of disgust or shame. Um, my sisters c- can be very gregarious and very outgoing, and uh, she often, when she's in a good mood, will will just happily chat to strangers, will happily talk to strange to to people that she's just passing in a park or meeting in a street, or certainly people who are serving her. At a uh, you know, if we're buying something from a cafe or something, she'll have a good good natter and a good chat. And what's what I really like about always liked about that is how disarming that is um, to the people who are being talked at by her because they always have that reaction of saying of of thinking oh this is someone who's a bit different who's a bit strange and I don't really know how to talk to them but because of her joy I guess and because of her outgoingness it can be quite disarming and I quite like that as a sort of way of um entering a sort of thread of difference into into a person's life and often the you know people that she interacts with will come away from it sort of a little embarrassed but kind of grinning and smiling and being a bit like okay that was that was a bit odd but it was funny and it was interesting and we were all just sort of we kind of let it happen and it's quite amusing and i quite like that so what i'm trying to say there is i quite like the that uh, uh, you know autism has this um sometimes has this way of of disarming the neurotypical in a good way i think in a way to sort of make you um, see the richness and differences of life, I suppose, and that was one of the things I thought that th- that Loop does quite well is that it brings, um, uh, it characterises a an autistic a, a sort of minim- minimally verbal autistic uh, young woman, teenager, I suppose, who um, who's who's placed in this position of into a kind of literally placed into a into a, an, a canoe a kind of boat with a a neurotypical guy and it's a story about her kind of disarming him for a short while and um giving him you know sort of giving him a sort of dif- experience of what it's like to be um um different in that way but again, there's 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 problems and there's conflict there, but there's also uh, again a, a nice sort of reflection on how diverge, neurodivergence can be a kind of a ripple of positivity, I suppose, into someone's life through that process of. Yeah, uh, of disarming and, and 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 sort of demonstrating how to be different and how that c- there can be pleasure in that. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the moment when um, the uh, autistic girl um, puts her, ha- you sort of, brushes her hand through um, the reeds as as they're passing them in the boat, and then later the neurotypical boy uh, does the same thing and sort of feels the feels the sensation of that happening. Um,
4: Yeah. I think that moment uh, leading up to the reads is a very important uh, sort of communication of Renee's intelligence and her ability to manipulate. um, Oh, I don't know the name of the other character. Does anyone know the other character's name? Uh, The boy?
3: I think it's Marcus, Mm -hmm. but I could be wrong. Marcus.
4: That's fine. Marcus, okay. Um, So, Renee. uh, is trying to figure out how to communicate exactly where she wants to go. And so she um, sort of uses her phone to bring up a symbol to indicate that she wants to go to the toilet because that's where the portaloos are, by the reeds. And so I think that's, um, you know, one of the more cunning things she does in the the episode. And it's just like a... I mean, I think it's so easy for people without sort of first-hand experience to be totally blindsided by nonverbal um, uh, forms of communication and and sort of not infer the sort of the mental processing that goes into sort of navigating around language and um, so i just thought it was um, really good that uh, that sort of cunning and that uh, innovative sort of manipulation of Marcus uh, was included as part of the narrative to to show Renee's agency and her intelligence.
3: I really liked just how normal it was, um, because I think a lot of times, like with the other one, the other film, people tend to portray it in like a fantastical way, in a way that people can get their head around. What I really liked is you know it's like a summer camp. Um, which a lot of kids go to, I guess, um, and it's a situation a lot of people find themselves in, and um, it situates the autistic person within that, and not kind of giving them a special role or special metaphor. It was just, you know, a normal encounter, which anyone could really have. So I and I really liked how, yeah, just the how real it was, and the and the boy not really treating her not infantilizing her, not treating her like a special case, you know, just trying to learn how to communicate with her. Um, and I thought it was interesting because I, I mean, I watched it last night, but right before then I I was having a conversation with my flatmate uh, because a week ago I had a pretty bad um, meltdown and it was quite traumatic. Um, and she was sat with me and she said, um, you know, in that situation, what is it that you want me to do? Because I don't want to, I don't want to get in the way. I don't want to intrude on your space, but I don't want to like make you feel like no one's there. um which obviously is a great thing to ask, and I really appreciate it when people do that. Um, and I just said, well, having someone there is you know I and mean, obviously i i'm I'm a verbal autistic, just high functioning um so it's obviously going to be different. And I said, well, I prefer when someone's there, but no direct contact. And I I was watching this film and I thought the way that the boy is dealing with that meltdown where he's just kind of saying, you know, I'll be here when you, you know, come out. Um, it's just really, yeah, it, it for me, it felt, it felt really helpful as a kind of, sort of, I guess, guide. I mean, not every person will be the same, but yeah, you could tell that this film was, well researched, and um, there was a lot of insight put into it. There, there was no kind of false uh, signaling and information, like like in music, which I did I, since I have watched the full film, and I agree that it's terrible. <laughs> and yeah, those kind of restraint scenes where they're quote crushing her with love, and this film is just the boy learning how to communicate and how to look how to accommodate this girl which is just a natural process that I think everyone goes through with everyone including autistic people and I'm really i really yeah I'm really glad they represented that in just a normal way a really accessible way. John James
1: I wanted to ask you whether you felt that this film was for autistic people um, i noticed that you were saying you thought float was for for a neurotypical audience and and i'd agree with that i think it's, it's particularly aimed at parents i wonder if what you thought of of loop
2: mm, i'm not sure really um i think it might be for autistic people and neurotypical people because i feel like the two characters are put in a in a boat and sort of Set adrift in a way, and and they can exist for a small time outside of society and outside of the the stigma that was so prevalent in float. Um, so they're sort of they're sort of meeting as mutual members that they're they're meeting halfway and 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 really. Just naturally, organically discovering how to interact with each other and, and how to communicate. So maybe that's that's who the film is for as well, like everybody. Um, yeah, because um, Marcus has some preconceived notions of of Renee at the beginning. He doesn't want to be partnered up with her, but then when when they move out of out of society for a brief time and and he gets to actually know her out, outside of his own preconceived notions. He feel, he feels like her equal and, and he's quite caring towards her. Um like like Georgia says he, he he lets Renee express herself in a way that she wants to and just gives her space rather than trying to to control or, or or make her smaller
0: yeah i do wonder slightly about the duty of care that the the camp leaders have um the adults in the situation have in this in this in this kind of narrative i know that they kind of you know it's a conceit really just to enable that Renee and marcus are you know as you say john james like, cut cut away from society a little bit you know you know isolated within that boat but i couldn't help but think when i rewatched it that like the 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 sort of adults in the situation, the camp leaders, who you don't really see very much of. Uh, what's their duty of care there in putting somebody, you know, an, a, a, a vulnerable autistic person into a boat with a young boy who doesn't, you know, have any caring responsibilities, and just letting them go off for the afternoon? I I, I slightly worried about that a little bit. I sort of thought, it does that send out the right signal, the right kind of message about how to how to incorporate um different neurotypes into such a situation maybe i'm wrong i don't know i've never i've never been to you know i've never sort of done that kind of thing before or been a camp leader or anything like that but um but there was a slight question mark about that in my head and they do spend quite a while on that kind of if you like desert island where renee is having her meltdown underneath the underneath the boat um while marcus is sort of waiting for her um and i sort of did wonder about why do they not have you know a carer or a or a responsible adult there with them <laughs> so that was the only question mark i had about the film i think uh but other than that i do agree i completely agree with what you were saying georgia about um it, it was refreshing to see um honest depiction of autism and um and it was also very refreshing to see um uh, that clearly it has been researched that 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 there is a a certain way to go about um, accompanying somebody who has a meltdown, and it seems like Marcus chooses the right thing to do there. Um, yeah. Although it, it is worth saying as well that um, the re- one of the reasons why um, Rene heads into that kind of meltdown situation is that that Marcus tries to do something for her. Um, which he thinks that she would like, so he he, he rose them underneath a kind of a sort of tunnel where the um the light reflected off the water sort of plays you know on the on the roof of the tunnel um various colors and shapes, and also the 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 phone noise that she has the sort of little app that she has on a kind of personal phone thing that she presses and and that's clearly kind of like a stim for her she presses that and it kind of echoes in the space and he thinks that this is going to be something that she's going to like and enjoy but in fact actually it, it sort of overwhelms her um, it sort of takes uh, it sort of triggers her sen- uh, sensory issues too strongly and overwhelms her and sort of leads towards the the meltdown situation um so I did actually think that was an interesting addition as well that that actually Marcus has tried to do something that he thinks would be a nice and positive thing for her and that actually ends up leading them into um leading them into a more difficult situation um so there is you know the 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 pitfalls I guess of of the communication between different neurotypes is is kind of Quite gently demonstrated there, but um, I thought that was quite neatly, neatly
4: done. David, I, I had a very different attitude towards the camp uh, uh, responsible adult. What was, what's the right word? Camp leader. I just thought, okay, this person knows Renee really well. They clearly have these like indo- in jokes about the woof woof sort of sound um, FX, and he must know Marcus very well as well. And it seemed like. He, it was a very clear calculation to like put them together, knowing that they'd both gain something from the interaction. So to me and I, and I think also, I was inferring that the camp uh, supervisor would get in the way or know he'd get in the way if he tried to sort of mediate or broker the relationship. So for me, I had this assumed omniscience <laughs> applied to this guy. I mean, that's
0: fair enough, but I, maybe I would have appreciated a quick shot of somebody like just off, you know on the shore, just keeping an eye on things. It just felt like that they were cut off from, from nowhere, and that you know, you, there's a point where Renee's rocking the boat and she could have fallen in, and it could have been like problems, you know. So I don't know, it was just a question that had you know entered my head.
1: Mm. I, I felt that it, that it stretched credibility slightly to how, how long they were away, and the, sort of the sun appeared to go down, didn't it? And this sort of montage of. Of them both sitting on the shore, waiting for her to come out. But I, I really also liked the fact that that allowed, in terms of the story, it allowed the neurotypical character um, to just be sort of in her wake. Really, that he he waits for her. He has to exercise this patience, and and she leads the action. You know, we wait for her to come out. So in terms of the story, I thought that was that was really, uh, uh, really positive. I also really liked the way they animated her face. And I thought that it was, I thought it was interesting that we had a quite a lot of detail around her fingers and her mouth and when she was stimming. And we were allowed to see that and be quite intimate with her um, without feeling like she it was caricatured or overdone. Um, <clears throat> I thought that the that the animation style was was really quite nice. Um, and a lot of Pixar stuff I find you know, a bit too smooth, a bit too close to 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 children's faces in that cute way. But I, th- I thought they just about stayed on the right side of that. Should we should we move on to to Mary and Max, which of course is a very different visual where we're we're given characters um who have very sort of poignant um features and particularly the sorts of things that are considered uh, aesthetically, cosmetically defects in terms of the girl's um, mark on her birthmark on her forehead, for which she's teased and, and made to feel quite bad. And uh, and with Max, um, his his weight, his general sense of self, with his appearance, the way that his face is crafted um, to exaggerate his nose. Um, to make his head very small at the top and so forth. Uh, it's, it sort of couldn't be more different to the smoothness of Pixar. Um, what, do, what what do people make of that film? I'm not sure I'm completely completely clear about what I make of it. There are things with it I like and things about it that I really don't like. I appreciated a lot of the, the dark aspects of the film. Um, I thought it went to some dark places, and quite quite seriously and quite convincingly, um, particularly towards the end when Mary has her very kind of suicidal and dark moment. Um, I found Max far more consistent in his attitude to the world that um, was also really appealing. Perhaps we didn't go to, to so many dark spaces with him because it's quite sort of quite a consistent approach to the world where you know he knows what he's meant to be doing he knows what the world thinks but um his mode of operating is just just quite quite different and and outside of that
2: um i'm i only watched it this morning so um i haven't fully thought through what i think of it really but i don't know it made me feel a bit uneasy i'm not sure i liked it um there was something about like it, it. touched on these these dark themes and and um, events, but the whole kind of film felt a bit like it was trying too hard to be quirky, and it was. It felt like it was there was like a infantilization of of the characters and and these these subjects. Like it, yeah. I, did, I didn't really didn't know what to make of it either. I guess.
0: Yeah, I, I'm similar to you, Janet. And I, I sort of got mixed feelings, I think, about this film. But I think some one of the some of the things that I do appreciate about Mary and Max compared to other films that you know uh, name autism and depict autism is that we've got an autistic character here who's a, a little bit different to the kind of common sort of depictions that you get we've got a guy who is um he's sort of, of a I guess working class he's 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 a bit older as well and generally we tend to get kind of representations of autism within um you know younger younger people but this is a guy who's kind of lived quite a long and full life um in many ways and uh and it and it does make an attempt to explore some of the, uh, quite a lot of intersectionality with autism as well. So, you know, Max is not just defined as someone, as someone with Asperger's syndrome. That's not his entire and full definition. He is somebody who is, has anxiety. He has, he has, he he gets depressed. um, He's overweight. um, He's alone isolated he's confused by the world and and these things while they do a lot of these things are intersected clearly with with Asperger's and a lot of them come from his Asperger's um it it doesn't sort of for me it doesn't quite wholly define him um there are lots of other issues going on and also you know there's a kind of nod towards um things like his the fact that he's Jewish um but then I sort of but also as an atheist, he sort of, um, you know, kind of declares that he's an atheist as well, um, and also that he's a communist. So there's, like, quite a lot of um, elements to Max that sort of, for me, made him quite a a, a, a full, sort of fuller and more rounded autistic character than we would perhaps normally get. I, I just sort of feel like most films about autism tend to, Present a kind of slightly exaggerated and slightly caricatured version of autism in order to sort of emphasize it, in order to sort of make it wholly about what this person that a person is. Um, but there's there's a clear attempt here to make to 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 sort of, albeit in a very cartoonish way, to um, to to to, depict, to explore some of the 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 other elements, I guess, of Max as a character. And I quite appreciated that. I thought um, I thought that was interesting in many ways.
4: Yeah, I I thought it was quite useful that his Asperger's diagnosis wasn't referenced until about 50 minutes into the film. So we have this sort of long space where we're just encountering him and his uh, idiosyncrasies. Um, But I think for me, the thing that stood out about the film is that we have a title at the beginning that suggests uh, this is a true story or based on a true story. So... um, Clearly, it's quite fanciful in many, many ways. But, I mean, what what um, Adam Elliott is really working from is his own pen pal who lived in New York, who was Jewish and is now an atheist and uh, has Asperger's diagnosis and is overweight. So um, he obviously has this sort of rich... He started off with this rich archive of letters um, to develop sort of... I mean, he, ri- he writes about the way he developed this script was finding these small details that he knew wanted to be in the film and then sewing them together later into some sort of narrative. And it has that, it really does have that feeling of like these sort of moments that are strung together loosely. But I think when he's writing about his role as in the narrative, he clearly identifies with Mary as the sort of his surrogate within the story and the significant sort of arc that changes Mary's experience is her deciding to make a publication about her pen pal. And then uh, the sort of poor response she gets from Max and his sort of, uh, you know, um, offense taken at some of the misrepresentations he believes that she's made about his Um, Asperger's. So so Mary interprets it and frames it as a disorder and a disability and something that needs curing. This strongly resists his sort of Aspie pride sort of um, perspective. And I just couldn't help but think of that as the analogy for this film itself. You know, uh, do you think that Elliot was essentially very anxious about how his pen pal is going to feel about this film, this biopic almost made about the um, his pen pal. And, I, and it, it seems, Janet, you made a reference to the fact that um, his pen pal only saw it once it was complete. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's clearly this sort of ethical dilemma that's explored and then sort of enacted through Mary's decline and in her into alcoholism and sort of echoing her mother's past, that um, is sort of channeling the anxieties of of Adam Elliot spending eight million pounds making a film about his pen pal whose identity he's absolutely mining for a creative project.
1: Mm, I I also thought that that was a really interesting turn in the narrative when when Mary writes that book um, and we see his response, we see her dependency on Max for a start, you know, his response is really important to her. And and then the effect of that is that it knocks her right back into this, this really well, very troubled position. And I, I, I thought that that was a really, you know, quite complex set of issues that the film was addressing there as, as David was mentioning, intersectionality is was is, is very much what the film was up to, you know. And I like the fact fact that Max's response wasn't tempered so that, you know, it wasn't too bad for Mary. Actually, it was pretty devastating for Mary. And these, you know, the autism and her um, her history um, of anxiety, of depression, of, of neglect met there in quite a, a confrontational way. And I, I thought that was one of the, Sort of more successful sequences in the film, um, in 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 addressing quite serious topics, if you like. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm kind of trying to think through this this point about who's who's who 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 are we seeing with and whose point of view are we seeing from and whether it is Mary. So I felt quite aligned with Max a lot of the time. And I wonder if that's something to do with age that I kind of identified with a lot of his midlife crisis, you know, that sense of sort of lethargy and like, you know, oh, so much has happened and it's all got a bit wrong. And, you know, that you can't, you don't, you don't have that sort of, that view of the life's in front of you that Mary has. Um, so, I, so I think there were different, the film offers different possibilities um, for, for for ways into the characters. I mean, what it, the, one of the things I found myself sort of contemplating with it is I, I, I got slightly bored with the letter format, the kind of the dialogue of, you know, her and then him and and how that worked. But I was thinking this is so much more successful than it would be if it were filmed with kind of real life actors, um, and why is that? I, I kind of couldn't get my head why around why this, as, as John Jones said, quite infantilizing sort of way of presenting this story somehow worked in a way that filming real-life actors wouldn't. I don't know if anyone's got any thoughts on that.
4: I think it's probably because they spent, um, you know, months on the production design. So every aspect of the scenery uh, is somehow... You know, a team of people thinking about the themes of the film and how that relates to the objects and the mise-en-scene, and um, you know, that you just just one of those frames is full of symbolism and rich imagery that communicates um, the story. Um, and so, I think you only really get that, and you get that you get that animation, but you get that really well in stop motion because you have all these different teams all working. Uh, com- contributing their own ideas towards how to reach this shared goal.
3: Yeah. I remember talking to my flatmate after we watched it saying, if this was filmed in live action, it would be a totally different film, especially because of the ending, you know, like imagine, you know, walking into this man's flat and he's, he's dead and your letters are plastered across the ceiling. It would be, it would, that sounds like a horror film, but the way that it's, it's done is is in yeah like a black comedy and kind of quirky yeah which I guess also reads as infantilizing. I think from my point of view, I was just kind of watching it from. You no, know, I was just kind of enjoying it as a spectator, and and for that reason, I just really enjoyed it just because I really like the humor, and I like the characters. But it, it's interesting how that animation um, comes into play with the issues that are, are being talked about. Because, yeah, it gives it a certain charm and perhaps sugarcoats it. I mean, it does quite a lot. And maybe it makes it easier to digest for a neurotypical audience or, you know, a, a younger audience. I mean, something I, something I liked was, um, I mean, obviously Max is officially diagnosed in his kind of 40s and 50s. Which is actually something that's becoming a lot more common now, and when it never you really used to be talked about. You know, if you're autistic, you're autistic from like when you're a child. But um, I mean, obviously, this is set in the this part was like in the '80s, '70s, or '80s. But yeah, a lot of representations of autism don't really cover the older generations. So I thought that was a good a, a good thing. And also, the way he um, learns to sort of adapt uh, with his condition. Because I guess some of the time it's just a case of, you know, I have, I have this issue and it dooms my life forever. But the way he learns to kind of read the letters. So he reads a bit and if he feels anxious, he takes a minute to calm himself. And then he goes back to them because he really does want to read it. And he knows that Mary doesn't mean to overstimulate him, obviously because she just doesn't know. I think that's a very real thing of recognising the problem or the issue and um, find your own ways of adapting to it, even with the nose plugs and the ear plugs, um, which I guess are dealt with in a quite comedic way, but, you know, it is a very real thing. Yeah, there, I guess there are definitely some issues with the, the sort of the way it's handled and the tone of it in, in a sense. Yeah, I guess I was kind of similar. I didn't really know what to make of it because, as a spectator, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the story, but I—I um, I know it's always difficult with with representing things through animation. And when does it become a caricature, and when is it like a loving portrayal? I guess.
0: Yeah, that's sort of. I guess the question is like, you know, does it? is stop motion animation or even just animation generally uh, better placed in some way to uh, in to depict or represent autism than live action is and i don't know, i think, think there is a kind of clear and easy answer to that question but there are clearly some strengths to it um I, I, and because it sort of like you know kind of animation can do things animation leans into sort of the 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 magical and the fantastical more naturally i suppose than live action does and therefore can use that uh, especially if it's spent meant to be comedic like it is here can lean into that in ways that um, live action just can't. So there were moments that, you know, there was quite a few moments in this film that made me chuckle and made me smile. Um, There's lots of little throwaway details, little, um, little, little tiny, tiny gags and tiny jokes all the way through. But there was like just things that are related to Max that I sort of, uh, I kind of appreciate that little, um that kind of little cutaway uh cartoony image that just succinctly summarizes um something that is part of max's experience so the the one example i can think of is he asks in one of his letters um he talks about smiling um and he says you know uh, uh do you smile i smile inside my brain and then you get this this little cut you know it's sort of head cuts away and you see his brain and his brain smiles and it's just like okay you know that's quite a nice neat sweet and succinct way of saying um quite a complex um emotional expression because uh you know quite a a, a, i would imagine a lot of autistic people um or pe- not not just autistic people, people in general don't necessarily always like to smile, and yet uh, others will say, you know, smile, it might never happen, or whatever it is. And, and 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 yet there is a... I thought it was just a nice and very neat and succinct way of showing that Max's emotional um, capacity is definitely there and is still in there and is still within his brain, but might not necessarily be expressed upon his face. And I think that's just... It was just a quick daft, silly, cartoonish way of making quite an important point, I think. So I think in some ways you know, animation and stop motion animation can do those sort of things. But then on the flip side of it as well, what the problem is is when you've got an aesthetic like that and a whole film that does that, it can sometimes slip into slightly more discomforting areas. So there's a a very brief section where Max uh, has been institutionalized. And he uh, ends up in a, as he calls it, a mental hospital and you see a sequence of brief shots where basically he's like in a bed uh, having been drugged up and his kind of eyes are kind of in different directions and then you see him um having electric shock therapy and it's done in a very cartoony way a very almost kind of sort of frankenstein's creature sort of way it's like pads on his head zap and he sort of go you know it sort of zaps him um and and again that, that was sort of slightly throwaway and kind of cartoonish and comedic um but again was is something that is real and does actually happen and in some respects does continue to happen. Um, And I felt felt as if the the kind of stop motion animation cartoony aesthetic therefore didn't quite work for something like that. Um, I don't know how they would have done it differently, but for me that was a bit too too far of a step into the cartoony world um, that didn't didn't spend enough time reflecting on the seriousness of that sort of of a situation, I think, really. But yeah, but I do think that the animation and stop motion animation as with Mary and Max and all of you know, and loop and float does has a capability to do things slightly differently to live action that that perhaps aligns better with autism in some ways.
4: It's something I'd want to think more about, I think. Just on the point of um, caricature, I mean a sort of grotesque and distorted no sorry a caricature is a um distorted face for the purposes of comic or grotesque outcomes and so like that's definitely happening within this film but i think it's really important that it's happening to every character with the exception maybe of mary who's relatively sort of un uncontorted compared to the rest of the caricatures but um yeah, I think it's important that that sort of level of sort of separation from reality is consistent throughout the film. so it's not doesn't end up being a comment on the sort of physiognomy of of autism. Um, so I just thought I'd throw that in there and I, and I think you know there are, whilst the animation is this sort of degree of separation from reality, that has an impact and maybe pulls its punches when we're talking about some abusive, um, sort of medical practices that have been phased out at the same time, it allows for conversations, um, to go darker, quick, more quickly and sort of enters this new realm of sort of safety addressing quite difficult topics. So I think that's really a strength of this film.
0: Okay, great. Well, um, I think we're probably coming up to um, to the end now of the episode, uh, uh, but yeah, no, I think it's been really interesting to 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 look at three examples of um, animated films and how they uh, they each approach uh, autism. I think there's a a, a a theme shared among them of also of uh, the lines of communication between autism and uh, non-autism. Um, that's what kind of what all three. Uh, films uh both the shorts and the 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 feature film share um and perhaps they do so uh, with varying degrees of success but uh yeah thank you very much for joining us and listening to this episode thank you to uh alex john james georgia and janet uh for all of your thoughts regarding mary max loop and float and uh we'll be back again with another episode looking at another film concerned in some way about autism uh very very soon so thank you very much for listening goodbye you have been listening to the autism through cinema podcast hosted by georgia bradburn john james laidlow alex widdowson janet Harbord, and david hartley big thanks to leverett jakes for editing this episode our theme song is waterfall by meter under a creative commons attribution from null teal records the Autism Through Cinema podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema Project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another slice of neurodivergent cinematics. Bye for now.